0: Good morning. So as Tom just read, we are going to be in Acts chapter 26 this morning. Before we get started, let's pray. Lord, help us <clears throat> as we consider what, what you have given to us this morning to understand. I pray that you help us to comprehend it, comprehend it rightly. And Lord, I pray that your spirit will work in our lives to not just comprehend it rightly, but to to consider it, to understand it as truth as your truth and Lord I pray that your spirit will use it in our lives to transform us and help us to continue to grow in you and worship you and value you and and um, remember who you are so Lord glorify yourself in our study this morning in your name I pray amen Acts chapter 26 of course as we already know because we've worked through chapters one through part of uh, chapter 16 I'm sorry Chapter 26, verse 1 through chapter 26, 14, at least part of 26, 14. um, We know that right now Paul is is a prisoner. He's giving his defense after he gave it before Felix, and then he gave it before Festus. He also has given it now before the crowds um, uh, once, and um, of course before the leaders, the Jewish leaders as well numerous times. We're in the middle of his presentation of his defense before Agrippa. And it is interesting, as we've looked at it up to verse 14 of 26, we're discovering that, that this is becoming really the, the core passage on his defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we'll find today, in continuing in verse 14, is even, I would argue, more stunning than what we've seen up to this point in time. Now, hopefully this material we talk about is not new to us, but if it is, that's okay too. If it's not, then repetition aids in learning. But I hope that you will find the study this morning to be uh, challenging and, um, and um, encouraging at the same time. It is full of hope, uh, but obviously we cannot have hope without pain, and so we need to hear both of them. So with that in mind, we're only going to look at one phrase this morning. I know we've been jumping over a lot of verses at a time, Uh, Last week we did 13 and a half verses, this this morning we're only going to look at one phrase and that's where we're going to camp, now we're going to look at it in its context and everything else but we're going to focus on one phrase and the phrase is found in verse 14, the phrase is as Jesus speaks to Saul on the road to Damascus, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, that's the passage we're going to look at this morning. Uh, And I think the reason why we're going to look at this passage exclusively or focus on this passage is because I would argue that if we understand this passage rightly, it is going to bring a lot of clarity onto the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that perhaps we haven't thought about before. Perhaps we have, but it hopefully will bring much much more coherence to our understanding biblically of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, It's an interesting passage from several reasons. Number one, I've read a lot of commentaries on Acts over the years, including in preparation for our study here in the book of Acts uh, and our current study. Uh, In this passage, this phrase or this statement, this sentence, uh, that it is difficult, it is hard to kick against the goads. There's been very little written. It's interesting, very little uh, real wrestling with what does Jesus mean when he says to Saul, it is hard to kick against the goads. Um, What has been said about the statement, it's hard to kick against the goads, is typically either um, merely a historical explanation of what the text actually means historically, which we will talk about, Or it's that and a a brief statement that the idea of kicking against the goads is the idea of Saul persecuting the Christians or persecuting Christ, the previous statement. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Sometimes it's just that last statement. Sometimes it's the first one. Sometimes it's the first and second one. And sometimes it's only the second one. It's just focused on... Um, the difficulty Saul's going through in, in persecuting Christ. I would argue it's something vastly different from that. In fact, I would argue it is what Jesus is doing is very, in his, in his sta- question and his statement, very different from that. But let's start out with just a historical understanding. What does this mean, the raw statement? It is hard to kick against the goads. What does it mean? We've got to ask ourselves, what does it mean to kick against the goads? And we also need to ask ourselves, what are the goads? In order to understand the historical perspective here. So if I may do so, I'll start out with an explanation of what are the goads? Since he mentioned it's hard to kick against the goads, what exactly are the goads? And by the way, before I answer that question, we need to understand that there are four times in the scriptures that the word goads shows up. This is the only time in the New Testament it shows up. The other three times is in the Old Testament. That, I think, is actually an important point. Um, that it shows up three times in the Old Testament, one time in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it shows up um, to mainly, uh, well, one time it's focused on the physical activity of the function of, of the goads. That we'll get to in a second. The, the, the second time it shows up which is actually the first time it shows up chronologically is the actual use of the goads. what it u- is used for we'll talk about that in just a second um, but it's 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 focused more not just on its, on its primary use but a secondary use so the first one again is the f- primary use the second one is a secondary use the secondary use is uh, w- when a guy uses it in battle and he kills 16, 600 Philistines with it. Um, the other time it's used is very similar to the time it's used here. and It's in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 13. Um, and that's where uh, it's connected to teaching. So goads are connected to teaching. So it's, it's very connected to this passage here. So what are the goads? Basically, if I could sum up what goads are in the ancient Near East, if you lived at that time, you were most likely a farmer. In some way, form, or fashion, it was an agrarian society, you were a farmer. Being a farmer, you every year would plow your fields. And if you plowed your fields, you would have to use something to plow your fields. What you used typically was oxen. They were strong, they were beasts of burden, they were able to pull the um, the plow through rocky soil and break up the rocky soil in order to plant the crops however oxen didn't typically like doing that activity oxen really like doing what do you think sleeping and eating that's kind of like what oxen like to do (laughs) it sounds like you rusty (laughs) sleep and eat that's what they like to do So if the farmer was going to plow his field, he had to keep those oxen motivated. And the way he would keep them motivated is he had what was called a goad. He would control the reins in one hand, and in the other hand, he'd have what was called a goad. So what was a goad? A goad was a long stick or a long rod. But that's not all it was. Not only was it a long rod, but at the end of the rod, it would have iron spikes on it and the iron spikes served a really important purpose because oxen are pretty bullheaded things and they got a pretty tough skin so a light tap with a rod is gonna do nothing and so what they would do is they would put these iron spikes and they were long spikes usually a couple inches long and they would take that rod as their as their back by the plow and directing with their reins the, the uh, oxen, they would take that goad and they would hit the side of the, the rump, typically. They would hit the, the side of the ox to spur them on. Get the picture? Because if they didn't do that, what would the ox do? He'd just stand there and do nothing. And if there's anything to eat, he'd just eat. So they would hit them to get them to move. And if they had two, they'd hit on both sides to keep them moving. And they had to do it the whole time. They would hit and hit and hit and hit and hit to keep moving. Unlike horses, where you just kind of make noises and slap the reins to keep moving, you actually had to ab- almost abuse the oxen to get them to move. And that's the goads. Now, as the, now this brings it out to the fuller statement. It's hard to kick against the goads. The idea is the oxen are attached to the plow. And what they would, what they would do is they would hit the oxen with the goads. and what do you think, as soon as they' hit the oxen with the goads, what do you think the oxen would do? They would kick. That's what they would do. No, they wouldn't move forward. They would kick. Against what? What would they kick at? The thing that hurt them. And so they'd kick against the goad. And so guess what the farmer would do? Hit them harder. And guess what they would do? They'd kick harder. And so they'd hit harder. Would kick, the farmer would hit harder. And guess who would eventually win? Said? Not the oxen. You know who to ultimately win? The farmer wielding the goad would ultimately win. That's the historical understanding. Now there are times historically when oxen would actually end up getting killed because they weren't, eventually they would die because they weren't, they were all they were doing is kicking and they would never do anything. At which point they're of no use. To the farmer, does that make sense? They'd be no use to the farmer, and so the farmer would end up just hitting him so much that they would end up bleeding to death. But typically, eventually, they would start to move. It's it's that kind of understanding that we we have to remember as we work through this text. When Paul, when Jesus says to Saul, "It's hard to, for you to kick against the goads," you get the picture what Jesus is talking about. Just in the pure basic understanding, what Jesus is saying to Saul is you are what? Kicking against the goads, right? And who in the scenario is the farmer? God is, right? God's the farmer and God's wielding what? A goad, right? He's wielding a goad and what's, what's Saul doing? He's resisting. And his resisting is described as? kicking against the goads right he's refusing to do what the farmer is demanding he does and no matter how much the farmer says do this he's not doing it make sense he's not doing it no matter how hard the farmer In this case, God is wielding and swinging the goads. Guess what? Saul's just kicking. That's what he's doing. That's the basic understanding. Interestingly enough, most people don't go beyond that. that that have studied the text. That's where they go, and that's all they go. But I think there's something much more important going on here than just what we just described. There's something dramatically much more important than that. Several things I would say as we look at verse 14. You'll notice, we we looked at it last week, verse 14. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's the question. We talked about it last week. And we talked about the whole idea of persecuting Christians is ultimately doing what? Persecuting Christ. We talked about that last week. We don't want to forget that, but we're kind of going to move beyond that at this point. Because I want you to notice something. Jesus is asking Saul a question, isn't he? That's pretty obvious. Last week's text, we saw that. Jesus is asking, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I would argue that after jesus asks the question why are you persecuting me he answers the question when he makes the statement it is hard to kick against the goads that's not merely parallel communications it's a question and an answer He says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is a really important question. Because the question is very very much epistemological, which means it's very much dialing into this idea of what's your source of truth? What exactly do you believe? What is driving you? What is fueling you? Why are you acting? Why, why? I'm sorry. Why are you acting how you are acting? Why are you doing what you're doing? And his answer is it's hard to kick against the goad, which tells us what, what Jesus is thinking about when he asks the question, Why are you persecuting me? This is really, really important. Because when we ask the question that we looked at last week, why are you persecuting me? It, it must be answered, not firstly from Jesus' perspective, but from Paul's perspective, which will, which will help us to understand Jesus' perspective more when he gives the answer. Because when Jesus asks Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul has already, through Luke, laid out why he's persecuting Jesus. Why he was persecuting Jesus. He also lays that out in Romans. And he also lays it out in a number of others of his books. Why he was persecuting Jesus. Now he doesn't say, hey, I want you to understand why I'm persecuting Jesus. But he tells us why he was persecuting Jesus. And the reason why he was persecuting Jesus is this. Because all his life, he was a really good Pharisee. He says that in Philippians 3. He says it earlier, repeatedly, throughout the book of Acts. Does he not? And as a good Pharisee, what is Saul doing all his life? He's keeping the law. He's doing everything he can to keep the law. He's fighting to keep the law. He's trying to figure it out. He's studying the law all the time. And we know that's the case because even Jesus said in the book of John, He said to the Pharisees, Saul was a Pharisee, you search the Scriptures because you think you'll find salvation there. You think you'll find eternal life there. And what? You miss the fact what that it's all pointing to me right why Saul Saul why are you persecuting me Saul's answer must be one thing and one thing only i all my life have been a student of the law and as a student Of the law I have spent all my life as a student of the law doing one thing and one thing only and it is what trying to keep the law right so you see the answer the answer to this first question from Saul's perspective and God's Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is ultimately because the answer to it is, I'm persecuting you because I, what? Any idea? Well, I don't believe you're the Christ, yes, but? Because I believe I can justify myself. Because I have spent all my life doing what? Striving as hard as I possibly can to do the law, to keep the law so that I may be justified. And then you come along and you declare that you yourself are what? The fulfillment of the law, and I can't accept that because I can't accept the justification comes from outside of me. Does that make sense? That's Saul's perspective. Of course he would hate Jesus. Of course he would hate what Jesus' message is. His message is diametrically opposed to self-justification in every way. He declares you can't keep the law, does he not? And Jesus isn't the only one that declares that. Read Deuteronomy. You know what Deuteronomy teaches? Of course, you know, it teaches the law. And then after it explains and lays out all the law, it says there are blessings for keeping the law and curses if you what? If you don't keep the law, right? But in the midst of that discussion in Deuteronomy, what is the standard that is presented? It is absolute perfection. Is not you did really well. It is not you did it most of the time. It is not even that you sacrificed to cover up all the times you didn't. The law demanded absolute perfection. And it wasn't just Deuteronomy. It's throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy absolutely calls for absolute fulfill, or, or perfection on the law. And if you read it carefully, you recognize that even in Deuteronomy, it talks about a coming Messiah. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, at the end of every minute, at the end of every second, your only hope, Your only hope is mercy. That is your only hope. The Scriptures tell us that the law is a a schoolmaster, and all the schoolmaster does is show you how you did wrong. That's all it does. That's it. And yet, here's Saul. Here's Saul. He's trying desperately hard to keep the law. And how hard is he doing? How hard is he working at it? He's working at it so hard that he's even furiously traveling all over the area to do what? To persecute, imprison, kill, and cause people to blaspheme the one who is declaring himself the fulfillment in their place. He's doing everything he can from his perspective to defend what he believes about the law. In every way. And yet in all of his raging, in all of his persecuting, in all of his imprisoning, in all of the murdering, in all of the attempts at getting people to blaspheme, Christ is still the fulfillment of the law. He still is. So, what is this referring to? When he says, it is hard to kick against the goads. Jesus is speaking to Saul after asking the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then stating afterwards, it's hard to kick against the goads. What does he talk about as an answer to that, to, to the question? Jesus is acknowledging everything we just talked about. But when he says it's hard to kick against the goads, Saul, he's saying on several levels, Saul, here's the deal. In all that you're doing, it's useless. It accomplishes nothing. Because here's what the law does. If I may just paint a, a farming picture. We have a field, but it's not like any field you know. It's not like any field you've ever seen. It's not like any farmer's field you've ever observed. This is a farmer's field that's not made up of dirt. It's not even made up of dirt and rock. This is a farmer's field that is just solid bedrock. You get the picture? Farmer has the field, it's solid bedrock. And the farmer has hooked the oxen up to the plow. He's brought him over to the field and he's hollered at the at the auction to plow. How that's, how's that going to work out, do you think? It's absolute futility, isn't it? And so you know what the farmer you know what the farmer does? <clears throat> farmers got the reins and the farmers's got the goad. You know what the farmer's doing? He's hitting the oxen to do what? To plow, right? And the oxen does what? He can't move, he can't plow, right? He can't break up that ground. He doesn't have a hope of breaking up the ground, does he? And so he does what? He kicks against the goad. And the farmer swings that goad harder. And he kicks harder. And the farmer swings harder and yells more. And he kicks harder. And he's bleeding. And in this case, he's even trying, the oxen is trying to go through the field. But the plow just won't move Does that make sense the plow won't move it cannot cut through the rock it cannot turn over the bedrock no matter how hard the oxen tries he never moves an inch And the farmer just sits there and swings the goat. You get the picture? And all the oxygen does is what? Kicks against the goats. And this gets to the point of what Jesus is trying to say here the law was never intended to cause the plo- the field to be ploughed it was never intended to the field can't be ploughed can it can it it cannot be ploughed it has no hope of being ploughed it's hard bedrock No matter how hard the farmer swings the goad, it will not be plowed. No matter how hard the oxen responds to the swinging of the goad, the field will not be plowed. That oxen will stand there all day straining pull the plow through the field and at the end of the day it has done no good and that's exactly what Jesus is saying to Saul Saul has become convinced that he can plow the field he's become convinced that the law tells him how to plow the field and to turn the field over and, if I may use the term, yield peaceable fruit of righteousness from the field. But no matter how hard Saul pulls, No matter how hard he pulls, he will spend his day kicking against the goads. That's all he will do. He will accomplish nothing. Because justification, coming to faith in Christ, is not man's doing. Man cannot plow that field. The law demands absolute perfection. And the scriptures even tell us to violate one of the commandments of God means what? You've broken them all. Absolute perfection. And the sacrifices of the Old Testament could do nothing to solve the dilemma because all they did is cover what was there, temporarily waiting for the promised one that all those sacrifices looked forward to do. Only he could do as the fulfiller of the law. He's the one who could take that stony, useless field and cause it to yield. Correct? He's the only one. No one else can. And so as a result, if we are harnessed to the law, all that ends up happening is we end up kicking against the goads. What's the goads in the scenario? The goads are God's revealed law telling us, go, 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 but demonstrating that you can't go. The purpose of it is to show you can't and how hopeless the whole thing is. How absolutely hopeless! Saul has found, at the end, of, at the end, at this time in his life, he's found that all he has done. What Jesus is saying to him is, Saul, all you've done is kicking. You kicked against the goads, and how hard was that? You've accomplished nothing. You've just demonstrated the futility of it all. That's why Saul was persecuting Jesus, because he refused to acknowledge the futility. He rejected that he needed a fulfiller of the law. He believed he could fulfill the law himself. It's really important that we understand this. We talk about salvation as in justification. We need to desperately understand, and I hope we get this because we've talked about it and talked about it and talked about it, that there is nothing that you and I can do to be saved. There's absolutely nothing we can accomplish, and this gets to the very core of the gospel. The gospel is both bad news. And good news. The bad news. Saul, all you've been doing is what? Kicking against the goads. That's all you've accomplished in your life at this point in time is you've kicked against the goads. And all that you've done has made no eternal difference. The field is just as hard. And just as solid as it always was it's bad news isn't it And there's nothing you can do about that and Allah has clearly demonstrated that which is why in Philippians chapter 4 he said I count those things as what dung count them all as dung I did it all he says in Philippians chapter 3 I did it all Nothing. And I say that because I do believe that vast swaths of Christianity still believe in their conversation, I hear it, that there's still some doing going on in justification. And we need to understand that it is not. It's God breaking through time and space and rescuing a people for himself. He's the one who rescued. He's the one who took those who were dead in their trespasses and sins and did what? Made them alive. He did that. He is the one who gave us faith to believe, right? And that believing, even that, is the first demonstration of faith, isn't it? My believing doesn't cause me to be saved. It is a demonstration that faith was brought to me. It's a demonstration that he made me alive. I don't become alive because I believe. I believe because I was made alive. The distinctions are important, friends. Otherwise, we're still kicking against the goads. Now, in this text, it's talking about justification. I want to step out of this text And take the idea of what God is presenting, Jesus is presenting to Saul, and take it away from this text and show us that things don't change. I want to to do something here real quickly. I want to help you in the transition. We have talked about salvation as justification, right? And justification is I'm dead in my trespasses and sins and... God has to do the work, right? God, the Holy Spirit, has to do the work because I cannot, right? I am unable in myself to respond to God. It must be God working on me because I'm dead. Every aspect of justification is God toward me. Salvation is from outside me unto me, correct? Correct. I want to remind you when we talk about sanctification, I want to remind you that that also has been referenced throughout the scriptures in the New Testament as salvation. We talk about salvation from three perspectives. Salvation it, first of all is justification. Salvation secondly includes the idea of sanctification and thirdly Salvation also includes the idea of glorification. All three are part of salvation. Justification is a point in time, I was dead, I'm made alive, right? Sanctification, from the time I'm made alive to the time I go to be with Him, is the process of sanctification, correct? And then lastly, that we just mentioned it, glorification is when I am transformed i am translated i am taken from this world into glory and i am changed right and no longer will sin have any hold on me right in any way form or fashion it will no longer have any effect on me it will be absolutely in every way removed from me and i'll be made like him amen whoo for that day i want to camp on the sanctification thing today because I am convinced, when I read the Scriptures, I am absolutely convinced this statement, it is hard to kick against the goads. And this text is focused on justification. Clearly focused on justification. And before I get off of this text specific, it is interesting that how Saul responds to it, isn't it? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. Who are you, Lord? I am this Jesus who you persecute. And the moment he hears that, what happens? He's transformed. Because up to this point in time, he's been persecuting Jesus, right? And from here on out, he's going to do what? He's going to follow what he says. He's transformed. Isn't he? He's taken from death to life. That did not happen once he got to Damascus. It happened on the road to Damascus. Yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. No question. No question. Study for another another point in time, but you're absolutely correct. <clears throat> Here's what I'm convinced of, and I'll lay out my reasoning for why Christianity today would. Well, some areas of Christianity today, when push comes to shove, would absolutely agree with what I just said about justification. I hate to say it, but there's a lot of people who believe, a lot of people in the vast swath of Christianity who still believe that even our justification, we do stuff in. That we have to do things. And I want to remind you that when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, what did he mean? It's finished, right? It's finished which means that justification is not a doing thing. It is a, a trusting. It's, it's a finished thing. It, it's finished thing, right? That's what it means. <clears throat> and for a lot of conservative Christianity, they would agree with that. But it's interesting how rare it is to agree that that translates or trans uh, or crosses over into sanctification as well, but it does. The vast swath of Christianity would argue that justification is by grace through faith alone. Now, when push comes to shove, you find that a lot of them don't believe that, but they at least we say that. Salvation, referring to justifications, grace through faith alone. Period. End of discussion. That's the big delineator between or divider between Catholicism and Christianity. But when it comes to sanctification, everything goes south. Because in the vast realm of Christianity, in sanctification, and I was there for a long time myself, I believe that justification is by grace through faith alone, but sanctification is all about me what doing things. Now, let me pause for a second. Does God command believers to do things? Absolutely he does. It's very clear. Romans, for example, Romans 12 through 16, Colossians 3 and 4. James, um, uh, Ephesians 4 through 6. I'm just drawing some ideas. It's really clear. There are commands and prohibitions in the scriptures. But you know what's interesting? When you study the New Testament epistles that Paul wrote, you know what you find over and over again? Paul is addressing churches. And when he's addressing churches, Nine times out of ten, he's addressing them because they're caught up in what I need to do. And so, what they're doing is they're embracing an idea that was destroyed by Christ in justification. And they're saying, in effect, Christ didn't destroy that idea in our sanctification. And you know what Paul is saying in Galatians, in First and Second Corinthians, and in a variety of other books that he wrote, epistles he wrote? You know what he's saying to them? <clears throat> he's saying to them, it's hard, isn't it? Kick against the goads. Do you realize that's what, Saul, what Paul is saying? It's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it, Galatians? It's really hard, Corinthians, isn't it? It's hard to kick against the goads. That's what he says in Romans, too. After chapter 3, from chapter 3 to chapter 11, he says it over and over and over again without using the term. It's hard to kick against the goads. What does this look like? To reject the idea of work salvation, but to embrace an idea of work's sanctification. What does that look like? Oh, looks a variety of ways. But you know, what it looks like, generally speaking, it looks like. If I may be real general, it looks like I, as a Christian, have this list of things I need to do, and that's the whole statement. Oh, we may add in a second part, and the second part says. And they, those works, those acts, those things I need to do, will bring glory to God. That may get thrown in occasionally. But I would submit to you that when Christ set us free, He set us free indeed. You know what that means? (laughs) It means several things. It means that we're no longer at that field. That field is gone. Number one. Number two, it means, and the reason why I say it's gone is because he's given us a new heart. The field's gone. We had a stony heart, now we have a fleshy heart. That field's gone. But I would submit to you, Also, the yoke is gone. The yoke is gone. It is. Do you remember Acts chapter 15 when Paul said, why would we put that yoke on them once again? That's what he said. Why would we do that? Talking about the law. That was the big debate in Acts 15. Why would we put that yoke on them again? That yoke is impossible to bear. The implication of why we put that yoke on them again implies also why we go back to that field once again. It could not be plowed I could not wear that yoke. I couldn't wear it then. Effectively, I can't wear it now. And by implication, when Paul says, why would we put that yoke on them once again? It involves the field. It involves the, the uh, impossibility of pulling. And involves, lastly, the what? No, ever talk to the yoke. The goad. Because if I'm, if I'm back in that field wearing that old yoke I'm gonna need what I'm gonna need the goad but Christ set us free from all that he set us free that's why I say over and over again to us the scriptures Paul does not record the love Christ controls me. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy. I'm sorry, my yoke is, I get that all confused. Yes, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's in direct contrast to what? The law. And all that comes with the law, the yoke, the Goad, the stony field that I can have no hope of plowing. In contrast to that, Jesus' yoke is easy and His burden is light. A lot of people say that's because Jesus is, is in the other side of the yoke. I get that, but it's so much greater than that. It's so much greater than that. It's a different field. It's a dirt field. It can actually be plowed. Seeds can be planted there. They can grow and flourish and bear fruit. His yoke is one of grace. And that's why Paul says the love of of Christ controls me. You see, the point that Paul is trying to argue throughout his epistles is this. One of the many points. Even in sanctification, just like justification, even in sanctification, it is a done thing. Do we have to do in in sanctification? Yes. We cannot do in, in justification. Do we have things to do in sanctification? Yes. On one level, we don't want to minimize it, deny it, overlook it. We don't want to do that. However, we need to keep the order correct if we are going to get this. Paul made it and I've already quoted I'll quote it again. Paul made it so clear when he said, the love of Christ controls me. He made it so clear. What he means by that is for a believer, for a true believer, the focus of the true believer is not on what he needs to do. It isn't. It wasn't. It isn't. It never will be. The focus of a believer is not upon what he needs to do. The focus of a believer is in who his Redeemer is. That's the focus of a believer. And we could fall into a trap of saying, yes, so what I need to do is know Jesus better, right? And even that's out of focus. It's out of phase. It's out of order. Do You realize that? Even that is out of order. We sing a song that says... All we need is to feel a what? A need of Him. Right? And the next line in the phrase, remember what the next line of the song is? And this He gives you. So we sing. And this He gives you. Now again, it's talking about justification. But it also equally applies to sanctification as well. This He gives you the spirit works in a true believer and does what in a true believer he transforms us and that transformation primarily is in giving us longings and desires to to know to know I remind you of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He prayed that his followers would know the Father and know the Son who you've sent, he says. And he says, and the word he uses for know, you've heard me say it before, is a sexual term that means in the most intimate way possible. That's his great prayer for you and I. That we would know the Father and the son who he sent and what the spirit does in a believer who has a new heart his primary work in a believer is in changing us to desire and crave to know him and in knowing him He gives us a love for the one who first loved us. That's what he does. That's what he does. And I'm using the words very carefully. That's not what we need to do. That's what he does. Do we need to love Jesus? Well, yes. Of course. We're commanded to love Jesus, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Right? By the way, I just quoted the law. And you know what that law will do for you? Nothing but get more goads in your side. That's all it will do. The Spirit must change us to desire Him. To recognize His love. That's why Paul prays that that the Spirit would open the eyes of our heart so that we will see Him, right? That's primary. Because when I see Him, what's going to happen? I'm going to love Him because I recognize in my new heart, I recognize His great love. And if I may say this, this he gives you. This he gives you. He does. Doesn't mean there's not a war. There is a war, isn't there? It's big. But a true believer, he gives us a new heart. And I refused to sell short the new heart he gives. You see, even in sanctification where there are things for us to do, those things that we are to do are properly understood as responses, pure and simple, responses to His great love for us. In other words, all the doing we do gain us How much? Nothing. As a believer, all the good I do, all the following of God's law that I do, even as a believer, it gains me nothing. I'm not earning my justification. I'm not earning my sanctification. I gain nothing. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I count it all done that I may gain Christ. And experience the power of his resurrection. Being made like him in his sufferings. That I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you notice there's nothing in there about all the stuff he's got to do? Isn't that interesting? There's nothing in there about all the stuff he's got to do. It's not there. And I know the kickback I get, and I've got it many times, is, Steve, all that is, you're just preaching antinomianism, anti-law. No, I'm not. I'm trying to get it in the right order. I've been very clear. Has God told us what to do and what not to do? Yes. But what we end up doing is we end up living our lives according to what I need to do. And friends, I just got to tell you something. If that's what we're taking to heaven, we're doomed. We are absolutely doomed. I think the best thing we could say in glory, if, if, if we were to ask, <clears throat> ask, why should I let you into heaven? You've heard, the, you've heard the question before. The only real answer is you shouldn't. You shouldn't but for the mercy of Jesus. That's the only answer. Because <laughs> I have gained nothing in all my doings. I've gained nothing. Either I am recipient of God's mercy and grace, or I have nothing and am nothing but condemned. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is not just referring to justification. It's referring to sanctification as well. 100%. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Friends, it really is. Not just in justification, but sanctification as well. And we know. You would expect this, wouldn't you? If justification is all of God. And we know that glorification is all of God too, isn't it? Wouldn't you expect that sanctification is as well? make sense it's kind of weird that we take sanctifi- sanctification out and say well but sanctification is of me and what I've got to do this he gives you buy without money right we can come we got we've got great purchasing power without money and the purchasing power is the mercy and grace of God If I may quote Tom, again, same quote I've given many, many times. I know it's not new to him. He stole it from somebody else. Even the best of my activities are what? Absolutely laced through and through with sin. I added a few things to it, Tom. It's laced through and through with sin, isn't it? Even my best activities. If I'm banking on that, If I'm banking on that in my sanctification, that's pretty rough sanctification, isn't it? That's pretty ugly sanctification, isn't it? You know what's amazing about sanctification? That God changes us in spite of all that junk. That God changes us in spite of all the garbage that we drag in unnecessarily. If I continue the farming analogy, you know what? We keep adding into this beautiful, beautiful field that we are now at. You know what we're doing all the time? We're throwing rocks in the field, even to the best of our days, even the best of our activities. It's only His grace and mercy. It's hard, friends, to kick against the goads. And what does that mean for sanctification? It means when we're trying to do it ourselves, we're not banking on the one who has fulfilled the law. And we're thinking that there's somehow still a role for the law in salvation. And there isn't. Has God told us what to do? Yes. Should we be doing it? Well, yes. Should we, should we not follow the? Should we follow the prohibitions and not do the things he tells us not to do, and follow the prohibition, or follow the commands he tells us to do? Well, yes. Of course. But based on what? Where it always ends up is, we should do it because God what, tells us to. That's where it goes, doesn't it? We shouldn't do it because God tells us, not to. That's not the biblical thing. Grace. And I want to reflect my love for him in this way. I want to be a reflector of his love, and this is a beautiful way to reflect it. It's an ordained way to reflect it. And even this he does. Isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. We are not saved by works. We are not sanctified by works. And we will not be glorified by works. It is all of the Lord. We're active in the sanctification. But we work, what does it say in Ephesians? We work because he works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right? It's tough kicking against the goads, isn't it? I don't know about you. But I have spent too long kicking against the goads. And it hurts. Doesn't it? It's painful. That kick against the goads, because you and I both know, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything. Why would we want to go back to that yoke of slavery again? That's what the scriptures tell us. Why do we want to? And the answer to why would we why would we want to go back there? The answer is because we don't know and understand the love of God. My hope for the message this morning is that perhaps in you and me, what the Spirit will do, I'm not going to give any idea of what we need to do from here. My hope, my prayer, is that God would open the eyes of our hearts so that we will be enthralled by the Spirit With the love and mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we are, you know what's going to happen? That's by the Spirit. When we are, you know what's going to happen? We will follow Him. We will find ourselves saying, If Jesus says, are you going to go back like everybody else did? We will find ourselves saying, why would we? You have the words of life. Right? Why would we? You know what the implication of that statement is? Why would we? All we want is the words of life. That's the implication there. That's all we want. And from there will flow a glorifying of God, a proclaiming of Him, a faithful following of Him. I'm going to close on this one statement. Acts chapter 1:8. once again, declarative, it's a, it's a declaration of God, it's not a prescription, right? Not a command. It's a, it's a statement of reality, an indicative, not an imperative. I'll say it all three ways. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will what? Receive power and the Holy Spirit. When, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Right? That's what said. Again, a command. Not a command, is it? Not a command. Is it commanded elsewhere? Yes, it is. But he declares it to be so. The command is based upon the declaration. The command to be witnesses is based upon you will be my witnesses. So the day of Pentecost, the disciples didn't get together. The apostles didn't get together and say, well, God has commanded us to preach the gospel, so let's get out there and do it, did they? Is there an inkling of that idea in the text? No. What happened? When they received the Spirit, they had power. They couldn't wait to get out. did you know what happened? They couldn't wait to reflect the love that they, had, they recognized to have received. That's what happened. Didn't it? And it's not just there, is it? Do you see any command that caused Stephen to get up and, and preach to people who were about to kill him? No. The love of Christ controlled him. As it happened. That's what you see everywhere. And I have to say, who has bewitched us, to quote from Galatians, to actually think it's other than that? It's hard. It's hard to kick against the goats. And you know, for believers, we know it's true. Don't we? We know it's true. Not just in justification, but in sanctification as well. I bring nothing to the table ever but my sin. Everything else Jesus brings to the table for me. Let us enjoy the feast, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We feel it deep within our bones the need to obey. But we do not feel deep within our bones the reason for the need to obey. We have lost sight of you. We have left our first love. And we ask you to stir up in us the truth. We ask that you will cause us and give us the longing and the desire, the craving for the fountain of living water. Because we, left to our own devices, will never drink from the fountain of living water. We need you. I pray for us, it will be just like the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that our hearts will burn within us for your word, for your truth, you and then from that we pray that you will cause the rivers of living water to flow from us and that we will be sanctified by your spirit protect us from what all through the ages the church has always fallen into sanctification by love. and help us instead to taste and see that you are good. In your name I pray, amen.